I like uh, I like this question because at first I was I was telling a friend earlier I like um, at first I think I don't uh, I don't know what that would be and then as soon as it starts getting going there's like a flood of like oh there's lots of stuff I would love to tell myself things like uh, like getting a credit card because you get a free T-shirt might not be the wisest choice in college if anyone had that experience uh, I remember thinking wow to a friend I can't believe I got a free shirt like how do they afford that. <laughs> And then years later, just paying interest on a large credit card debt, I realized, oh, that's how they pay it. <laughs> they tricked me into it with a free shirt. Um, things like maybe, uh, I w- maybe you should read more, maybe watch less TV. Or if I could meet my uh, self when I was young, I'd say, your parents do actually love you, Drew. You should maybe listen to them a little bit. Maybe that's coming from a dad now. It's wanting to tell myself that. I'd love, I'd love to tell myself, find people who actually love you and actually care about you um, and maybe care about their opinion more than others. It's amazing how much time I spent trying to gain people's approval who didn't really care about me. Um, I'd also probably recommend to myself to not make a MySpace account because uh, I put some weird stuff on there on my blog. Anyone else have a MySpace blog? Oh, yeah. I think it's gone now. I tried to look it up. It's, I mean, it's not really gone, right? But I can't find it. Um, I would tell myself failing is okay. That was really hard. I was as a young man to. Uh, I just couldn't believe I failed. It would destroy me. I'd probably tell myself to invest in Google, maybe Apple, early on. Um, I one of, one of the things I know that I'm I'm the pastor. And I'm standing in front of you, and we're you know. I'm, We're about to look at the book of Hosea, so I'm supposed to say this, but truly, truly, I'd go back. I spent many years thinking I could just figure it out, working as hard as I could, doing everything I could. I wish I could say, Drew, in the end, you probably can't do this. You don't have to figure it all out. Jesus really does do what he says he's doing. You can trust God. Don't forget him and what he's done. Um, that's when I actually think I probably say to myself, like yesterday even, <laughs> if I could go back in time, Drew, you, you keep forgetting who God is. You keep forgetting uh, what he's done, what he's continuing to do, what he's going to do. And I quickly uh, turn to myself or other things. And that's really what we're getting at today in the book of Hosea. We're in a series in the book of Hosea, uh, which is an interesting Old Testament book. It's a minor prophet. It's a pretty short book. It's maybe one you haven't are unaware of that even exists. Um, maybe you're just not sure how to pronounce it, so you've never said it out loud. <laughs> I know that was me. Uh, it's a book, though, about a story of a family that really gets to the same heart of us forgetting who God is and what that leads to. Just a quick summary. We've only been in it a few weeks. God comes to a guy named Hosea. Lord began to speak through Hosea. He's the prophet here. He's the one God's going to speak through. And he says to him, not just, hey, go tell people things on my behalf, but he says, you're actually going to like act out in your life what, what this relationship looks like for me and my people. He says, go marry a promiscuous woman or a woman of many lovers, an adulterous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So God is going to set up this picture in Hosea's family. He's not just going to say, hey, you should tell people to stop being unfaithful, to turn back to me. I'm the one that brings life. I want you to, you're actually going to play this out. People are going to look at your family. You're going to feel the pain of adultery. You're going to feel the pain of unfaithfulness. You're going to watch what that looks like. 
And so he does marry Gomer, um, and Gomer does choose other lovers, just as God's people Israel did the same. Ran after other idols and other gods. Last week we heard Tony Evans, the pastor, says, uh, he, he describes sin in a way, like I love this description, that it's like uh, when you first cut a flower, its stem, you know, that it, it's dead, like it's, it's on its way to death. So sin is like us cutting ourselves. It may look still like we're alive and beautiful and red or yellow or pink, or, but really he says you're holding in your hand death. And so this book of Hosea is reminding us that as we become unfaithful, as God's people became unfaithful, they were really snipping themselves from the source of life, taking on the names of death. And last week we heard this. Uh, Gomer has children and God says to name them words that mean bloodshed and death. He, he names his daughter, no love. and names his other child, not my people, as they turn from God. Uh, and then we learn that Jesus eventually changes that. And so Hosea, uh, oh, this isn't 2-1. Oh, it is 2-1. He says, say to your brothers, my people and your sisters, my loved ones. So it says someone will come and actually change that. Even in their unfaithfulness, we'll make them loved and my people. And so this is where we pick up. So it, it kind of seems like the first chapter of Hosea is the whole story. It's the story of Mary, this woman. She's unfaithful to you and has these children. And I want you to know that in that sin and that unfaithfulness, you're not my people. You're not loved. You're bringing death upon yourself. It says, but then one day this will change. There'll be this king who will come and he will make you my people again and make you loved and he will bring life. And you say, amen. It's a good book. One chapter, short, sweet, reminds me of Jesus. And then the rest of Hosea really gets poetic. And we get to zoom into the really what's going on, the, the feelings that God has towards us and towards this adultery and faithfulness. And today that's what we're going to look at. Today's passage actually doesn't really resolve like yesterday's um, we're going to remind ourselves of Jesus at the end, but first we're just going to sit a little bit in what this looks like, this unfaithfulness. So if you have a Bible or we have all the passages up here, we're going to continue in the book of Hosea in chapter two, just part of chapter two today. So you can just read along with me. They all should be right up here on the screen. So we heard this great news that will be called family again, and then there's kind of a break in the text. The author says, okay, now I'm going to go take time to like, let's go and look at what this looked like. You know the whole kind of big story, but I want you to, to zoom in on this, this, kind of turn your microscope and see what does this look like to be unfaithful. And so now some pretty, very real, seemingly harsh words come. It says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. As if, it sounds like God is even talking to the, these children now. It says, rebuke your mother, she's not my wife, because of her unfaithfulness. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as in the day she was born. I will make her a desert. Turn her into a parched land. Slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. I got pretty real, pretty quick. Do you hear the language that's used here? If she's going to turn away to other lovers, then I will make her like a desert. Dried up. A parched land. I'll slay her with thirst. What a phrase. Slay her with thirst. Can you feel that? This, this passage has lots of great description. 
thirsty, dried up, kind of lifeless, just blowing sand, waiting for death. This is what unfaithfulness looks like. Well, he continues. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. And she, she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. He's saying, this, this is what she says. The unfaithful wife here, Gomer, says, I'm going to go after these lovers, these idols, because they're the ones who give me everything. What I eat, what I drink, the clothing, olive oil. I drink this, this oil. It could even be referring to like a spiritual gift they've given her, like she's been anointed by them. Therefore, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off <clears throat> than now. So he's telling us this story, this, that she's run after all of these lovers, these idols, ultimately, right? these things are not, her first love, her husband, because she says they're the ones who provide everything for her. They're the ones who give her life and nourishment and all the, the pleasures of life. And he says, no, she's not. I'm gonna have to like hold her back from that because those actually bring death, not life. And hopefully then she will say, I will go back to my husband as she realizes she can never catch them. I found this, um, as, as we take this moment in, in Hosea and Gomer's life, and then we kind of zoom it out now to see it connect to the whole church, to God's people, and even to our own lives. Um, this verse 7 strikes me so much. She says, I would chase after, she'll chase after her lovers, but not catch them. This idea that we have these things that we do chase after, that we think provide us with our food and our water, our provision, our life, our growth, things that don't actually bring Life, but over and over we chase after them and we never really seem to catch them. They remind me of a phrase that someone uh, asked me for a, series, a period in my life. Uh, they would say, Drew, can you, what can you fill in here to help me identify what those things were that I was chasing after that wasn't my creator? They'd ask me, if I, had, if I just had blank, I'd be okay. They'd say, what, what do you fill in that space? What are you telling yourself? Well, I mean, maybe you don't actually say it out loud, but when you're in your car and you've had a really tough day, you're driving home, what, maybe you don't say it, but what are you feeling? If I just had this, everything would be okay. If I could just get a little bit of this, everything would, if, it would, if I could just have this person in my life or this thing, if I could just reach this place, everything would be okay. Maybe it's a helpful way to maybe identify what those other lovers are, or idols, or what we're worshiping that's not our God, what relationship we're running after that's not our God. Because this section actually ends describing what's happening here. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the green and the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Baal is the, the God they were worshiping. So God's saying, in the end here, What's happening is you're not remembering or acknowledging who actually gives you life, who actually gives you provisions, who sustains you. 
You're believing a lie that somebody else, and maybe that's just you, will sustain you. It's the cycle of sin that we see over and over in our lives, right? This, this thing where we keep going back to something, even though we can't catch it, or even if we catch it, it doesn't bring us what we think. This just happened in my house um, this week. We are growing uh, vegetables, and um, really just vegetables to make salsa is pretty much all we grow, <laughs> tomatoes and peppers. Uh, and we're growing these new peppers this year that are supposed to be a little spicier, and there was these beautiful red ones. They were like, I mean, amazing, so bright. And my daughter saw them. And so she grabbed, can we pick these? Oh, yeah, for sure. So we picked them. There's probably six or seven of them. They're on a plate in our kitchen. And she said, I really want to try one. I said, well, they're a little, they're a little spicy or maybe a lot. We actually don't know yet. And just biting a hot pepper isn't always this, you know, the white. Oh, they look so good though. Dad, they're red. They look so bright. They look so tasty. She kept saying, they look so juicy. And you're like, well, they might be juicy. And so she took a big bite of the pepper and she went, oh, not a big deal at all. And then she walked in the other room and then I heard her as fast as she could, like ch- I heard water chugging, like, look, 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 look. And, then, and I went in there, her face was under the faucet. It's very hot, dad. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't know what to, I said, oh, honey, you don't want to eat those. So then later she said, I think I'm gonna eat another one of those. Do you want one? No, I don't. <laughs> Uh, I saw what happened to you. And she said, I think I'm going to try another one. This time I'm going to cut it up and just eat little pieces of it. Oh, that's maybe a good idea. Let's try that. So she chopped it up. Ate a few, oh, that's not as bad. Still hot. My lips are still burning. She's walking around the house with ice on her lips. I think, come on. And so then the peppers were slow. And she said the next day, I think I might eat those peppers. And I said, oh, honey. And I, and I took the peppers, put them somewhere else. And then she found the peppers. And I thought, well, maybe this is just a good parenting moment. I'm just going to let you go. I just pepper. I don't think this can like really hurt you. <laughs> and sure enough, it wasn't long. She was walking with ice on her lips. Her head was under the faucet. Again and again, she just kept going back to this pepper. And every time, guess what? It burned her mouth. It burned her tongue and the inside of her. her oh, she was so frustrated. Every time, Dad, every time it burns. Do you think any of these don't burn? I probably not. <laughs> I thought, oh, I was, remember I was sitting on, on my deck. And I thought, oh, you silly kid. If only you could be an adult and not like habitually do the same thing that hurts you over and over again. I thought, oh, how silly, right? It's, it's what we do over and over. We find ourselves chasing after these lovers that we think will bring us life. And they end up hurting us over and over again. Well, the passage goes on. Um, and explains now really what happens when we turn from the source of life. So not just what's the problem. The problem is we're turning from the source of life. We're not acknowledging the source of life. In Romans 1, we even hear that really is the definition, how they define sin is that we've decided to turn, decided to become foolish and turn from God. And he said, you know what? Go grab, grab those peppers again. We'll see what happens in hopes that we would come back. And so now we're going to see what that looks like. In Hosea 2.9, it says, Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. So you don't want my wine or grain? I will take it away. I'll take back my wool and my linen intended to cover your naked body. You will not have the provision, the clothing that covers you. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. Here it's going to expose her. I will stop 
all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. So what happens? She becomes uncovered, naked, cold, exposed to the elements. And even in the passage we hear the word used, she becomes exposed. And then it says, no one will take her out of my hands. Whether they don't want her because now they see all of her, or that God is holding her back from running to an idol, they're going to see her in all that she is and say, oh, I, I don't want that. Is this like our greatest fear? To be totally exposed? Totally just naked? Not actually, not really physically, but maybe that's a fear you have. <laughs> maybe you have that dream where that happens. But the, the exposed, like they really know you, all of you. And they go, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want that. He even says, I'm going to stop her celebrations. You no longer get to celebrate these things. There won't be celebrating anymore. You turn to others. There's not celebrating because there's no reason to celebrate in a life that's leading to death. What continues on, not only is she exposed, but I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. The things that these these uh, idols, these lovers gave her to be with them, those will be ruined. She'll be ruined. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I'll punish her for the days she, she burned incense to the Baals. So she worshiped the Baals as gods. I'm going to punish her for that. In fact, this life will lead to being devoured. And she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers but me, she forgot. So there's exposure, there's ruin, there's being devoured and death and punishment. There's this payment or a reward for the unfaithfulness and it's ruin. Even as I, it's interesting that he says she'll be decked out, she'll deck herself with uh, rings and jewelry. She's getting herself presentable for her lovers. She's getting herself in a way that they would want to come and, and be her, or at least like she's somehow uh, uh, making herself a- approved by them. Like, so they'll go, okay, I guess you can hang out with us. You look good enough. Now that's silly. Why would she do that knowing that these things could bring death? And then I thought of how often I deck myself out with things. So I, I'm not a big ring or jewelry person. <laughs> I'm not often putting nice jewelry on. But oh, I put other things on. The way I dress or I talk, even how I talk about how I spend my money. You know, any way that a person I'm with, for me, uh, one of the idols could be a person that's just standing next to me. Any one of you could be standing next to me and I could say, okay, today all I want is that person to love me, to approve me, to like me. And so I put on whatever I feel like I have to put on for that person to want to come close to me. For that person to give me approval or give me whatever, that person who I'm turning into a God, an idol, whatever that would be. I think of this very practically. You ever had this happen where someone says, oh, you guys all know in that movie when this happens? I think, I, I don't, but I go, oh yeah. Right? Right? 
You go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, I got to look up that movie. It sounds pretty awesome. Uh, or at least so I know something. You think, why in the world did I do that? Because you're decking yourselves with rings and jewelry. Because you say, I want to do whatever I have to do to look well so this person will give me what I need. This person will become an idol so that they'll give me approval or love or kindness, or maybe you just want something from them, money. I want something from them that I know I can get from my God, but I'm gonna get a, a subpar version from them. And so we turn and become unfaithful. You see this phrase that's used at the end here? But me, she forgot. Man, what a phrase. She's gonna deck herself out. Can you imagine that she's getting all dressed up to go out to meet these lovers? And her husband is sitting at home as she leaves and he says, but me, she forgot. I'm right here. Our God says, I'm right here. And you're running to all these others that we know just bring death. And life is right here. How quick we forget. I, I think of a moment I had, uh, we, we paid some guys to reside our house. And in the process, they were re- did other things, lots of things. We needed a bunch of work in our house done so that I don't know how to do. Or if I did it, it would take like 16 years. So I paid people who could do it. And I had this moment where I was, a friend came over. They were working on our house. A friend came over and I was standing in my front yard talking to my friend. And these guys are working on scaffolding like in front of my house because they're putting siding on my house and eventually a gutter. And I said, yeah, so I, I put up the blue siding. First, I put up the insulation. Then, we, then I put up the siding. And then I, while I was up there, I thought, you know, while I'm up there, I should throw some new gutters up because the gutters are old. And, and then uh, I was going to, and before I could finish, uh, the guy who was, one of the guys who kind of became friends, they were at our house for a while, and said, who did all the work? <laughs> I said, what? I don't think I even realized I was saying like, I, I didn't do any of that. I gave him, I mean, I, pay, I gave someone money to do it. But this guy's been working day after day in the summer, in the heat, in the sun, putting siding on my house. And I'm now talking to my friend and saying like, I... I did, I did all that. I threw the siding up. They threw some gutters up. I don't even, I don't even know how you do that. I, apparently, I think you throw them up. I'm sure that's not how you do it, right? I mean, that's, that's funny, but how quickly I forget who actually does the work. And this is the issue that uh, we're seeing here in Hosea. This is what Hosea is, God is explaining through this relationship. How quickly Gomer is forgetting who actually provides and brings life and loves her dearly and is there for her and is faithful to her, how quickly she runs to other things. How quickly we run to other things. This, this isn't new. This is a cycle that we see throughout all of Scripture over and over. And it actually goes all the way back <clears throat> to the beginning. So in Genesis 2, we see this. First, we see this moment um, of exposure. It's beautiful. A, th- a moment I can't wait for when, when Jesus comes and makes things right, when this happens again. We're not in that now, but there was a moment when Adam and Eve, God's first family was together, this moment where God creates all of the world. He speaks into existence. It's beautiful. There's animals and vegetation, and it all works right. It's all in unity. And he creates man, and he says, man shouldn't be alone, and he creates woman and Adam gives this little poem, he like sings, this is a woman, we're together. 
He's so excited. And then Genesis 2 ends. The big ending of all of that creation, it says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It seems like a weird add-on to the end of a creation story, but really, it really gives the feeling, it gives the atmosphere and the environment, gives the culture of what's really the garden is like. It's not just saying they didn't wear clothes and they were cool with that. It says they were exposed. It's a word that means like they were transparent. You could see all of them, not just physically. You could see all of them, how they feel what they think. They were completely exposed to each other and they felt no shame. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine feeling just half of the shame that you feel? No. They knew everything about each other. And they went like, I love you. God knew everything. I love you. I'm with you. There's no, there's no weight at all of being ashamed. There's no thinking back and saying, oh, I wish I could tell myself not do that because now that that holds on it's with me it wasn't there it was beautiful luscious look at this photograph the animals are just all together they're bathing together i don't know how that all worked but i love this i love this painting and then it changes not long after that in genesis 3 not many verses after that we hear Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All of a sudden, they're covering themselves up. They went from naked and not ashamed to, oh oh no, look who I am. What I've done. And they're covering themselves up. This is another moment in Scripture. We see a picture of from being open, naked, free, to covering yourself up, hidden, Hiding. In fact, it goes on to say they were hiding from God. Not in a relationship with him in the same way. They're fearful, lonely, worried. Maybe even whisper, I just want to die. I just don't want him to see me. From a relationship with, with the creator, that's beautiful. They're taking care of the garden to, in a moment, what happened? That they're hiding from him. Forgetting even who God was that you could even hide from him. They were exposed. And so what happened? Well, what happened is what we see in Hosea and we see over and over in our lives just before that, right? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So they ate fruit. Well, what happens is in the story is that a serpent comes who is crafty, the serpent being Satan, and and convinces them. The serpent says, did God really say to you that you can't eat from that tree? It's the one thing God said, hey, I don't want you to eat from this tree. Everything else is yours. Don't eat from this tree. He says, did he really say that? Is he really for you? Is he really the one that provides all those things for you? And so Eve says, yeah, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from this tree that's in the middle of the garden. Don't touch it. It'll actually cause you to die. The serpent says, oh, you won't die. 
Grab this thing. Go after it. Grab it. Enjoy it. You will not die. God just wants to keep things from you. He just wants you to not have those things. He wants to, to keep it to himself or he wants to keep you like below him so he can be so powerful and all-knowing. It says, for God knows that if you eat that, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so she sees that it's pleasing and she eats it. Right? She sees another thing, a, a lover to, to run after and she eats it. And what happens is that it brings death. They actually get kicked out of the garden. They actually get pushed out. They say, you, don't, you can't be in here. And it brings the curse. There's not going to be pain in childbirth. There's going to be death. You're going to return to the earth as dust. And so this cycle begins way back and we see it continue just as we saw it continue in the book of Hosea. This isn't new. We see people going from naked and unashamed. There's no shame or burden on them to choosing to run after something other than God and and being exposed and being burdened now. Death coming in. So this doesn't, this continues, right? We see this over and over throughout the Old Testament. We see this in, in most stories in the Old Testament. And then we see this in Hosea. And then we see it all the way as we get into the New Testament. We see this again, but it has a different ending in the Gospels. We see this... Uh, in a picture of uh, Jesus with his disciples. This is not a photograph. In fact, I would uh, bet a lot of money this is not what it looked like (laughs) at the Last Supper. This is a picture of Jesus uh, with his disciples having what we call the Last Supper. This last meal that they had together before Jesus was put on a cross. This is Jesus hanging out with his 12 disciples around a dinner table. In real life, they probably were reclined at a low table. Uh, But this is the famous painting. I kind of like it. It's fun to get to project this on a giant long screen. How often do I get to do that? These people have been with Jesus. They've seen him. uh, They've experienced miracles and healings. They've heard countless sermons about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like, how everything's going to be flipped on its head, what it really looks like to follow God. And so they gather the time of Passover. It's a time to celebrate another moment in their history, a moment when God rescued them out of slavery, out of oppression. They rescued them from Pharaoh's slavery in the Exodus. So they get together and they, they eat bread and wine and they celebrate every year this time when death passed over them because of what God had done. And so as they sit there, all the disciples are sitting there and two of them are uh, right next to him. This is Jesus. Not really, uh, but Jesus. And then there's Peter and there's Judas. Peter's pointing something out, whispering. And Judas is looking at him like, hey, you're creeping into my space. Now this story continues. They are eating the meal and two very important things happen. Two people are addressed at this, at this meal specifically. Peter is addressed as one of Jesus' closest friends. And Jesus says, hey, some things are going to happen. I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be arrested. I'm actually going to be put to death. And when this is happening, you're going to deny me. You're going to say, you're going to turn from me. I don't know you. You're going to become unfaithful and turn from me. No way that's going to happen. He says, yeah, actually the rooster is going to 
crow, and by that time, three times you're going to deny me. No way, Jesus. In fact, he says, I would die before I would deny you. And then Jesus says, how it's going to happen is that one of you is going to betray me. One of you is actually going to turn me into the authorities so they can uh, put me before the people and they can um, sentence me to death and they'll kill me. And they all say, no way, no way. Who could do that? And he says, it's the one that I'm dipping my bread in. So there's a cup of, of, uh, of wine and they dip their bread into it before they eat it. And he says, the one who's dipping in the cup with me right now. And so he dips in. This is where Judas enters the story. He's dipping in with Judas. So he says, Peter, you're going to deny me. Actually, all of you are going to kind of run, but Peter, you are. And one of you is actually going to be the one who makes this thing happen. And Judas runs. He leaves. And so now we have the disciples there. Peter minus Judas. He's not there. Judas has run off. Can you imagine them, the murmuring and the talking and like this meal was supposed to be this celebration. Now, what's going on? You're going to be killed and Judas is going to have a part in it and Peter's going to deny you. There's no way. Peter loves you. You're so close. There's no way. But it's Jesus, so he knows. And things do happen. The disciples then leave from there and they head into a garden where they pray. And actually while they're praying, they fall asleep a few times and Jesus wakes them up. At one point, he actually wakes Peter up. He says, hey, be watchful because you're going to fall into temptation. And so we follow the story of Peter. Judas isn't with them yet. They're in the garden. They're praying. Jesus is with Peter. It's got to be on his mind. Can't you imagine him saying, I'm not going to deny him. I got to make sure I don't deny him. How, how could he ever say that I was going to deny him? And as they're praying, guards come into the garden. They're led there by Judas. Judas is there and he kisses Jesus in the cheek to indicate to them that he's the one. And so there's this moment where they come to arrest Jesus. Peter's sitting there thinking, I can't deny Jesus. I, I told him to the death. I, wouldn't, I, I would never turn from him. And so Peter in this moment pulls out his little sword and he slices the ear of one of the guards off. I think I might do the same. I'm going to show Jesus that I'm with you. Nothing's going to happen to you. I'm right by your side. And he slices the ear of this guy off, which is, I don't know if he's just a bad shot or if that was like a really accurate, agile, you know, maybe that was his style of fighting, cutting the ears off. Um, it's, a, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to just cut off, right? He cuts his ear off. So there's this commotion. There's, I'm sure it's loud. There's people all over. Judas is with Jesus and he's like handing him over to the authorities and Peter is cutting a guard's ear off. And in the same moment, both of them really turning from Jesus. Jesus says, stop, Peter, what are you doing? This isn't how it's supposed to be. Jesus says, I'm bringing a, I'm leading a rebellion, but not of the flesh, like you think. Not of flesh and blood, but of so much more. I'm going to free all people from oppression, from a slavery. You thought the Passover was cool where we weren't slaves under Egypt? I'm about to free people forever of all time of sin and death. And it's got to happen this way. I got to be arrested. I got to be put to death. I got to pay for your sins and everyone's sins. Peter just doesn't see it. So now Jesus is arrested and taken away. Judas runs off. Peter runs off. The disciples all run and scatter. 
And so Judas and Peter once again are running and away from Jesus. As the story continues, Jesus is arrested and put on trial. Judas, in his great, great shame, feels exposed, feels ruined, goes and actually tries to give back the money that he was given. He was given money in order to turn Jesus in. He says, I don't want this anymore. I want to reverse this somehow. And they say, oh, it's done. You can't reverse that, right? You can't just pay back your sin and it's okay. And in the intense guilt and shame, the weight of that, he decides to choose death. And Judas actually goes right after. It's the last thing we really hear about him as he hangs himself. The great weight of that shame, of that exposure, he kills himself. Peter then is standing, probably confused, unsure what's going on, still thinking, I'm not going to deny him. Probably thinking, why was he arrested? What's going on? I thought he was going to maybe overthrow people and become the leader, and now he's letting himself be killed. And a servant girl comes up to him, who's a servant of one of the high priests who arrested Jesus. And she says, aren't you one of the people who was hanging out with Jesus? He says, uh, no, 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 I'm not. I don't, no. No, no, and she goes, no, everyone, look, this guy. This guy is one of the ones who's with Jesus. He says, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. In fact, she says it a third time. And this time, not only does he say no, he, he uh, brings curses down on them. He says, curse you. I hope God kills you. I'm not with this Jesus. Stop saying that. And then a rooster crows. He's turned from Jesus. He's become unfaithful. He's walked away. Can you imagine the weight that is on him in that moment? The same cycle we see again, right? Unfaithfulness turning away, ruin, exposure, So Jesus is put on trial, found guilty. Even though he's innocent, he's found guilty. We know now that he's found guilty and he's going to bear the weight of sin for all of us. Not just Judas's sin, not just Peter's denial, not just Gomer's sin, not just Eve and Adam's sin, but our sin and Everyone in there, in all of history from up until that point until after that point. And he's put on a cross and he dies. And the weight of that sin, he's just exposed to betrayal, to ruin. He's turned over to the hands of the enemy. Satan, all the way back in that moment with Adam and Eve, had a plan under that tree to eventually put our God on that tree. And he did. I imagine that, I always imagine Satan and the demons like are celebrating. They have some kind of celebration. And they're like, oh, we did it, we did it, we did it. And then Jesus like kicks the door in. They're like, where did he come from? Jesus doesn't stay dead. This is the incredible part of the story. We don't, they don't just sit in their shame. They don't just sit exposed and ruined. Because God decides to come and do something about it, to bring back his bride to make things right, to reverse the exposure and the ruin by being exposed and ruined themselves. He doesn't stay dead. 
Sin, shame, betrayal can't keep him dead. He defeats death, the power of sin. He interrupts Satan's victory party with his own victory march as the king marches back into town out of the tomb. Peter's hiding in a room at this point with the other disciples. They just, wait, can you imagine just the weight in that room? Did we follow the wrong guy? I can't believe I said I didn't follow him. And Mary Magdalene runs in the room with some other women. They just burst into the room and they say, you would not believe what we just experienced. A room filled with fearful friends of Jesus changes. She says, we're just at the tomb and Jesus isn't there. He's alive. She has this incredible news, not just good news, great, not great news, but world altering, history-changing news. News that will become the greatest news in all of the world. Jesus is alive. He's conquered death. He's here. And so what does Peter do? He says, oh, I might have another chance. Him and John get up and they run to the tomb. In the book of John, John actually makes sure that we all know he ran faster than Peter. So it's one of the fave verses. But they run together. John's a little faster if you're wondering. Don't know why that's important. <laughs> they stood over the empty tomb. They see shredded linen and Jesus' body is not there. It's true, Jesus has made a way. He is the Messiah. He's the one who put an end to this cycle, this beast of sin, this weight of unfaithfulness, this death that has gripped us, this exposure that has gripped us, this shame that has gripped us, the ruin that comes, the devouring of the enemy has been put to death. So Peter's story changes. He believes and he turns and Peter becomes one of the people that we see in the book of Acts preach to crowds of thousands who turn to Jesus, who believe the good news, who turn away from their other lovers and turn to the God who loves them. Peter eventually is exiled for his work in the church, sharing the good news for many years. And he dies on an island because of his unwavering faith in Jesus. Freed from the punishment of the unfaithfulness he had. God would use him to write a book of the Bible. He would use him to bring so many people to faith. A man who was unfaithful and denied Jesus and deserved death became one that God would use to bring that good news to many, many others. So we have a God who brings us from that exposure, from that unfaithfulness. That's not the end of the story. We could read Hosea and we'd say, yeah, I, I do that. I guess I'm done. I guess I have a life of being exposed, of ruin. And then it's, then it's over, I guess. It's not. It's really good news. Because Christ has come. He's been exposed and ruined so that we could have life. We could be embraced and given life. I'm going to bring our worship team up so we can sing that good news. We have a couple songs we're going to sing here together. I want to share some of the words. So as we sing them, we, we're thinking about this. I think of when we sing, Come Thou Font, I, I love this verse. And it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. As if, as if Gomer wrote this, right? Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. How often are we chasing after lovers and not catching them? We get to sing out, God, I need you to take my heart and turn it back. 
to you. We get to confess sin and repent and turn back to our God. And after we sing that, we're going to sing in Christ alone, which for me has a verse that's hard for me to even sing. It hits my heart so hard. This is a verse that reminds us that there is a point where, where we see in Hosea, no one will take her out of my hands. There's a point where God's hands were used to hold us and secure us, to keep us, hold us back from our enemies. Ones that even were kept, that, that, that were used to maybe help us not expose ourselves. Hands that we didn't maybe love. Hands that represented our own adultery and unfaithfulness that have been changed. And we sing now that we have hands that we cannot be plucked from. Satan can try all of his schemes and he cannot take us. He can lie all he wants and it will not kick us out of the garden again. All because of what Jesus has done on a cross. We sing of those hands that hold us now so we no longer have to feel the effects of those things. So we're going to sing that now. I'm going to pray for us. Encourage us to... um, uh, consider a few things here first to reflect on, and then we're going to sing and, and worship together as we end our service. A couple things I want you to think about as we end here. Do you believe Jesus is exposed, ruined, so that you may be made right, embraced, and brought to life? If you don't know that truth, today's a great day to say, yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it. Maybe what lovers, consider what lovers or idols are you chasing after? Answer the question, if I just had what, I'd be Okay. It answers Jesus, uh, but I put a lot of other things in there. What do you think makes you okay? What can we turn from? Maybe just what are you covering? What burden feels too big to handle? When I say you feel exposed, what is that thing that's way back in the darkness maybe no one knows about? But you feel like if that was exposed, I'd be ruined. Can you confess that? Can you give that to God? Because even that, he died for even that thing. And I'd love for us to consider what it looked like to be people who embrace instead of expose people. We definitely live in a time where exposing people is almost a, uh, a game, almost a profession for some. And what if, what if our church was a place that instead of people feeling exposed, they felt embraced and loved? What would it look like to be that person in those people? Let me pray for us and we will uh, worship our God here together. Lord, you're really good to us. We turn from you and we deserve ruin. We deserve death. Lord, we deny you way more than three times a day. But you went to a cross, you died, you were ruined, exposed so that we could be embraced. So we can be made new. I pray we'd rest in that good news that we would know you're the one who provides that and that we'd run to you and cling to you. That we'd repent. Lord, make us people who repent. I pray as we sing these words that we would do that and we confess and turn to you and continue to preach this gospel to ourselves. You're good to us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus who made this all possible. We pray in his name. Amen.